Good morning. Um, before we get started in our text today, uh, we are going to jump to John, uh, the, the gospel account which John the Apostle penned. Uh, we're going to jump to chapter 6. Here's what it says. <clears throat> All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. At, at this point um, in the gospel of John, what has happened is Jesus has fed the 5,000. After he feeds the 5,000, um, he is speaking, and here's what he has to say. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. What Jesus here is saying is completely and totally incredible. He is saying that the Father and the Son, once they save someone, they never cast them out. Meaning, once you are in the family of God, you remain in the family of God. Meaning, there is nothing that we do once we become children of God that removes us from being God's children. Once he saves us by his grace and mercy, we remain saved. So again, once saved, always saved. We, we believe that in, is, is inherent and in the teaching of the Bible. So if I don't do anything to earn my salvation, that means I don't do anything to keep my salvation. Here's another way to think about it. Um, parents, if you're a parent in the room, raise your hand. Okay, now... Parents in the room have held their children before. Now, it's the cutest little thing ever when your kid reaches up and grabs onto you and they're hanging onto you, right? You're, you're holding them as a baby, but they are kind of in, with their tiny little baby hands, right, grabbing onto you. Now, if at any moment they let go of you, would you as the parent then let go of them? The answer is no, okay? You should have said no right there. The answer is no, you would not do that because you are a loving parent here in this text in John 6. He is called the father in the same way the father hangs on to his children. So once people come to Jesus, it is the father and the spirit that, and Jesus that are working together as, as the triune Godhead to hang on to God's children. So the question is not, can a Christian lose their salvation? The question is, can God lose a Christian? The answer is no, he, he doesn't. He never does that. Now, this is the theology that John the Apostle taught. Okay, the, if you would have said, John, um, I have a question. If, if somebody gets saved, can they ever lose their salvation? He would have said, no. The answer is no. Okay, I, I wrote about that in my gospel account. I was actually there when Jesus said that. Okay, that, that if someone comes to me, I will never cast them out. I was there when he said that. So no, I, I do not believe that you can lose your salvation. Okay, now here's what becomes very interesting because in, as we jump to the epistles, okay, if we jump to 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, there was a group in that church that John is writing to in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. There was a group in that church that were there with them, they, they hung out with them, they looked like Christians, they talked like Christians, they smelled like Christians, they acted kind of like Christians. But, but for some reason, 
they left the church, walked away from the faith and, and totally started living contrary to what they had done before. So the people in this church are saying, but, but John, you said that once somebody gets saved, they're always saved. But this group of people that, are in, that were in the church, they left and now they're doing and acting totally contrary. To, so it seems like, John, that they've lost their salvation. Here's how John responds Chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. Here's what he says. They, talking about the people who had left the church, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be plain that they were not of us. John answers that question in a very simple way. They're they're asking, the church is asking the apostle John, you're saying you can't lose your salvation, but these people have walked away from the faith. What are we to make of this? And and John says, no, I, I still believe once saved, always saved. What I'm saying about this group that left is that they were never saved to begin with. And so for many of us, we know people um, who, who maybe some point in our life, we went to church with them, we spent time with them, we loved them. They, they looked like they were believers. They sometimes acted like, I mean, we, we truly thought they were, but all of a sudden they go off the deep end. The things of God no longer matter to them. And, and so what John is saying is that they probably were never saved. They went out from us because they never were of us. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't experience seasons of rebellion, but these people went out and remained out. They walked away from the faith and stayed away from the faith. John's saying, if someone walks away from the faith and stays away from the faith, then they, they were never saved. Now, here's a very interesting follow-up question. You guys still with me? Does that make sense? Here's an interesting follow-up question. So that church is asking, okay, what, what, what are we to do with these people who walked away? John says, well, they, they weren't saved to begin with. But they thought that they were. So now there's another question hanging in the air. They're saying to themselves, well, if we thought they were saved, but they actually weren't, how do we know we are truly saved? What's to say in two months, two years, we are the ones walking away and we discovered that we weren't ever actually truly saved. John, what, what are we to do now? And so John writes, first, second, third John, he writes these beautiful letters to this church so that they can know they're saved. He wants them to be assured. I mean, this church is looking at these people who have gone out, who have abandoned the faith, who are, who are living th- these lives that, that, that are terrible in God's eyes. And they're saying, we don't want to be those people, John. We want to know we're saved. We want to be sure that we're saved. We want to remain with God until the very end, John. Can you help us? Can you help us? And John says, absolutely. Absolutely, I can. And so he pins these great letters so that they would know that they're saved. They would have rock solid assurance that they know Jesus. And so we see in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, three tests Okay, he gives us three tests or three ways we can know that we are saved. We talked about them the very first week. We started this series. We're gonna run through them very quickly again and we're gonna come back to them repeatedly because they are repeatedly found throughout the text. Okay, so how can we know we're saved? Test number one is known as the theological test or the test of true belief. 
okay? How do you know you're saved? Um, you have the necessary knowledge for salvation, okay? You pass the theological test. What's the necessary knowledge for salvation? Glad you asked. The necessary knowledge for salvation is the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It starts this way. God is holy. You are a sinner, okay? You have walked in ways that are contrary to what God calls us to do. You have, I have, we all have, we are all sinners. God demands punishment for sin, which is death. That's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus comes and dies that death for us. And by faith in his atoning work on the cross, we can be saved. Okay, so we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, found in scripture alone. Okay, so grace and faith in Jesus. That is the necessary knowledge for salvation. Okay, so you have to pass the theological test. Jesus is fully God, fully man, came to die on the cross in our place for our sins. Test number two, the moral test or the test of true obedience. Here's what that means. Um, you don't just talk the talk, but you walk the walk, meaning you are earnestly seeking to obey and follow Jesus, okay? That's, that's the moral test. Jesus says uh, that you will know my disciples, they will know that you are my disciples because you obey my commandments, okay? That's the second test. Third test uh, is the love test or the test of true devotion. What does that mean? It means that you love the things that God loves, meaning God loves his church, so you love Christians, you can't say, I'm a Christian, but I hate the church. I hate all Christians, but I'm a Christian. That, that doesn't make any sense. Jesus died for his church. He loves his church. So therefore, Christians will love their church. And so repeatedly, time and time again, John, with this heart that wants Christians to have a rock-solid foundation to know that they're saved, he says, do you pass these three tests? If you do, you can know you're saved. You can have assurance of your salvation. Okay, so those are the three tests. Today, we are going to see tests two and three. Okay, we're gonna see test two, which was the moral test, and we're gonna see test number three, which is the love test. We're gonna see those two come out. So if you're an outline person, uh, here is our outline for today. We're going to uh, see in verses one and two, John is going to drop some cosmic knowledge about Jesus on us. Okay, in verses one and two. So we're gonna get to the tests, but first, uh, John, he, he gonna drop some knowledge. Okay, verses one and two is, is like a, a knowledge drop explosion about Jesus in your brains. It's incredible. Now, in verses three through six, we will see test number two, which is the moral test. And then in verses seven through 11, we will see test number three, which is the love test. Okay, so knowledge drop. Next is going to be the moral test. Next is going to be the love test. You guys got that? Okay, cool. Here we go. Verses one and two in chapter two of 1 John. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, he begins by saying, my little children. This is incredible. We know that at this point, as John writes this, he's an old man. Uh, likely all of the rest of the apostles have died and he is the last man standing. And so he writes to this church in this, 
this heart and this tone of a pastor, of a loving pastor who's, who's calling out to, to his children. Again, he, he's got some season on. He's a seasoned saint. He's an older guy who has, has seen and lived with Jesus and experienced all uh, of Jesus' ministry. And now he's got years and years of pastoral ministry behind him. And he has developed this loving and tender heart for God's people. So he begins this section with my little children. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I am writing these things. These things, what things are you writing, John? And for what purpose? Okay, I'm writing these things. So we we have that question to answer. What things are you writing? And then what's the purpose? I'm writing these things so that you do not sin. Okay, so the purpose of the writing is what? So they don't sin. So we have to ask, what is it that he has said or written that would make us not sin? Well, uh, in here, there are no chapter divisions in the original writings. You guys know that. Um, so, so when John uh, gets uh, to verse 10 of chapter one, he doesn't say end of chapter one, now on to chapter two. The chapter divisions were put in later on in the Bible to help us find things, essentially to work as the address so that we can go search them. So when he says, I'm writing these things, he's referring to verses five through 10 of chapter one. Specifically, I think he's referring to verse nine, which says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay? If we confess our sins, he forgives all of our sins. Now into chapter two, I'm writing that. I wrote that down so that you wouldn't sin. That's, that's, how, he, that's how he begins. Okay? So... He's saying, we are forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future. And I'm, I wrote that down so that you wouldn't sin. Now, doesn't that seem a little counterintuitive? If you are forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future, wouldn't you say, well, if I'm forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future, even the sins that I'm gonna commit, why bother not committing those sins? Why not just go into it full force? If I'm forgiven, right? Uh, as, as a matter of fact, doesn't Paul uh, in Romans chapter six address this same thing? Th- doesn't he say, uh, you know, should we sin all the more so that grace may abound? I mean, have you ever thought that? I mean, probably nobody in this room, but, but maybe it's just me. I mean, sometimes I, in, in my mind, I might catch myself walking into a sin and in the back of my mind going, I know God will forgive me for this. Now, I know nobody in here has ever done that, but, but that does happen to some people sometimes. So why is he using the fact that all sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, as a motivator or a catalyst to not sin? That seems counterintuitive. It seems like if we know all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, that we would run headlong, moving straight forward into sin and licentiousness. So, what is it, here's the question I wrote down. What is it about being forgiven in advance that makes us not want to sin? Well, forgiveness in advance is given to us precisely so that we wouldn't sin. What if your spouse says, I will always be by your side? What if your spouse says, I will never abandon you. I will always fight for your good because I love you. What if your spouse says that to you, okay? 
Now, in that moment, does that make you want to be more faithful or less faithful to your spouse? More. The the fact of their devotion to you makes you want to be more devoted to them. So when God says, I am completely, totally devoted to you, I will never cast you out. I will never let you go. I will always forgive you. It is God's devotion that then becomes the driver for not for us to run headlong into more sin, but for us to be more devoted to him and to his word and to obey him. Does that make sense? Isn't that awesome? I'm telling you, John just opens up chapter two. I mean, just drops it. I mean, it's incredible. It's incredible what he's saying here. He's saying, use God's devotion in your life to help keep you from sin. I mean, just, just imagine, imagine the, 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 the guy struggling with pornography as he, as he goes to his laptop and as he opens it up. Imagine if in that moment, in that very moment, he were to say to himself, God is so radically devoted to me that he has committed to forgive me of all sin, past, present, and future. He is so passionate about saving me and loving me and serving me that he would never abandon me. If he said that in his heart in that moment, I believe that computer would be closed and moved off to the side. So he begins, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He means God's heart of devotion towards us is the catalyst for us not sinning. Now, John's a realist. What does he follow it up with? My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, use God's devotion in your life as a catalyst to not sin. But if anyone does sin, okay, John's a realist here. He's not calling for perfectionism. He's saying, use God's devotion in your life. Know that God is totally devoted to saving you, to loving you, to forgiving you. That will help keep you away from sin. But if you do, what? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, an advocate with the Father. Who's the advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Who's the advocate? Jesus Christ, who? The righteous. All of these things fit so neatly together, okay? We have an advocate. This is a legal term that that kind of makes us think of of a courtroom, okay? So there you stand before the judge. You know you have sinned. You know you are guilty. You know the punishment is death. You you are standing there, you know, probably wearing a suit because you're in court. There's the judge. He is behind the the bench. Uh, That is God the Father. Standing right next to you is your advocate, your defense attorney, and he is advocating for you in defense of the sin that you are guilty of. That's Jesus. He's advocating to the Father for you. The question is, what does he say? Father, um, they, they went to church this morning. You know, you shouldn't punish them because um, they, they bought um, a study Bible, Father. You know, it's big and they carry it around. I even saw him read it one time. Hey, he looked down in the footnotes. Father, they, they go to community group on a regular basis. Father, they gave uh, to the church one time, uh, four times. Father, they, uh, they helped a little old lady across the street. They, does he say, is that, is that how Jesus advocates for you? He says, Father, you remember what I did? You, 
Father, I paid for that. I hung on that tree for that. He advocates, he said, Father, you remember that? And the father says, yep, I remember that. And that's it. He, he ad, that's how he advocates. He doesn't advocate by presenting your resume. He advocates by presenting his resume and saying, forgiven. Totally, completely forgiven. I'm advocating. Now, what's incredible is that he is called the advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous. So the question is, how is he able to advocate? How can he, how does, I don't have the right to advocate for myself. What am I gonna say to God? I'm a sinner, I've messed up, I've blown it. I deserve what he says I should get. I can't advocate for myself. I need somebody who's perfect, who's sinless, who is righteous. That's why he's called the advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, because he earned the right by living an obedient life. He earned the right to be the advocate so that he could advocate for me. So that when I stand there and I, I go, I got, I got nothing. Jesus goes, I got you. My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. Use God's devotion to you, for you, as a motivator, a catalyst to stay away from sin. But if you don't stay away from sin, we have an advocate. There's Jesus standing. I paid for this. I I took care of that. Father, you remember that? I did that on the cross. The Father says, yes, I, I remember that. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is, talking about Jesus now into verse two, He is the propitiation for our sins, okay? Propitiation, big, fun, churchy word. Now, uh, if you have uh, an NIV, uh, it might render it this way. He is the atoning sacrifice. Um, While that is an okay translation, I feel like it loses the full force of what is meant here in this text. Um, Translations like the ESV Uh, King James and New American Standard Bible get it correct by leaving this word in, that is the word propitiation. What What does the word propitiation mean? Well, it means this. It means the removal of wrath, okay? Propitiation means the removal of wrath. Let me give you a quick example. You are driving in your car, going down the highway. All of a sudden, someone, you know, speeds by you. They, without using their blinker, of course, swerve over in front of you, cutting you off, right? And you're now filled with wrath. You are angry at this person. Maybe you uh, err into sin and say some words you shouldn't say or show them an inappropriate finger. And they continue going forward. Now, you are mad, filled with wrath. And three miles down the road, all of a sudden, you see them again. But they have been pulled over. Ha-ha! Now your wrath has been propitiated. You are no longer filled with wrath towards this guy who cut you off. The cop has propitiated your wrath towards this driver. See how that works? Now, this text says this. He is the propitiation for our sins, for our sins. So we know that he is Jesus. The question is, Who's angry and for what? Well, God is angry. That's right. God is angry. God is full of wrath. The wrath is towards sinners. And 
God's wrath will find an outlet. He will pour it out on sinners. To say God is love and God loves you and God loves sinners is a true statement, but it is only half of the statement. The problem in church and preaching in general is that we spend the majority of the time on half of the whole sentence. Yes, God does hate sin and love the sinner. That that is a true statement, but it's only half of the statement. God hates sin and loves the sinner, and he also hates the sinner. He does both. God both loves and hates sinners. Now, let me back it up with scripture so that you don't think I'm a heretic. Psalm 5, verse 5. Psalm 5, verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. Psalm 7, verse 11 through 13. God is righteous judge and a God who feels indignation, anger, wrath, every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. You don't have to Google that word. It means to sharpen, W-H-E-T. Wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Psalm 11 Verse five. Because the poor are plundered, because uh, I will now arise, says the Lord, and place him, uh, I'm sorry, I meant, did I say 11.5? Okay, cool, got it, found it. The pastor can't find anything in his Bible. That's scary. Here we go, 11.5. The Lord uh, tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one uh, who loves violence. Okay? He hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God loves sinners. Okay? We believe John 3.16 is correct. For God so loved the world. And he hates sinners. How can he do this? Well, because he's perfectly God. That's how he does it. The truth is, we can't just hand people a tract that says, God loves you and has a plan for your life. While that is true, we must understand that God is a fierce God. God is an angry God, and he's angry at sin and sinners. This bothers him. It angers him, and he is filled with anger, wrath, and fury. It is a sad state that the church has accepted the the sky fairy God who pats you on the head and hands you candy like it's Halloween. We must know that God is an angry God. He hates sin and he hates sinners. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says in his great sermon called Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. Here's what Jonathan Edwards says. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready to string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. This needs to rest on us heavy and be incredibly terrifying. 
God is angry at sinners and his wrath will find an outlet. His wrath must be appeased. His wrath must be quenched. Back to 1 John. Verse two, he, that is Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. What, what does that mean? That means that the wrath that God, if you're a Christian, the wrath that God was going to pour out on you, he poured out on Jesus on the cross. Okay, so here's the good news. The good news is on the cross, God poured out his wrath onto Jesus. As he hung on that tree, the physical pain was excruciating, but the pain of having the full wrath of God poured out on him was infinitely worse. Imagine every Christian who will ever live everywhere. Okay, imagine that number of people. Now imagine those people's sin rap sheet. Now imagine all of the wrath that that would have stored up. Now know that that wrath was supposed to be poured out on those people for eternity and Jesus took it on himself on the cross in a short amount of time. Jesus took the wrath that was supposed to come to you, but he took it onto himself for you. Listen, here's the great news. If you're terrified by all the Psalms verses and that God's an angry God, listen, if you're a Christian, God's not angry at you. This is the beautiful, look, the beautiful doctrine of propitiation says the, the anger, the fury, the wrath that was supposed to come to you didn't. It's already been poured out on Jesus. That means for the Christian, we don't walk around thinking, he's mad at me today. I didn't do my devotions, cussed at my kid, you know. I, I, I keep messing up. I can't do anything right. God must be mad at me. He's not, he's not angry at you. All the anger that was supposed to come to you went to Jesus. So as Christians, we live happy, joyful, excited lives with a vibrant relationship with the Father, not a weird, awkward, he's probably mad at me today, so I probably better tiptoe around and I, I probably better read some more verses so he'll get unangry at me. I, I probably better say something nice to my spouse. I, I probably better try to earn uh, back into his favor so he's not so mad at me all the time. That is an incorrect view. The, all of the anger, all of the wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross, so the Christian gets to live in light of knowing God's happy and he loves you. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. That means that the gate is open wide. It means that uh, people, not just ethnocentric uh, Judaism, which Judaism is an ethnocentric religion, it means that not just Jews are welcome into the kingdom, but it means Scotch-Irish like me. It means, it means Germans are welcomed in. It means, it means the sins of the world have been propitiated. The world can now come and follow Jesus. Now, incredible two verses. Incredible two verses. Memorize them, write them on your heart. Now, we are now into the first test, which is, number two in our test system, but the first test here, don't get confused, verses three through four. And by this, we will know that we have come to know him, okay? And by this, what he's about to tell us, we will know that we've come to know him, meaning we will know that we're saved. So he's about to tell us how you can be sure 
of your salvation. Okay, we're still in verse three. And by this, we will know that we are saved. We will know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Okay, how do you know you're saved? You keep the commandments. Anybody who says, I'm a Christian or I know God, I have a relationship with God, I I am saved, but does not keep commandments, that person is a liar. They're not saved. That's That's what John is saying. Okay, so first we need to know this. It's not commandment keeping that gets you saved, right? We believe you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. So it's not commandment keeping that gets you saved, but if you are saved, you will keep commandments. Meaning it's not works that save you, but if you are saved, you will produce good works. If you are connected to the true vine, this is how Jesus talks about it in John 15. If you are connected to the true vine, then you will produce godly fruit. Um, uh, Apples don't grow oranges. Apples grow Yes. So, in addition, he's not calling for perfectionism. So when he says you will keep the commandments, he doesn't mean that you will keep the commandments perfectly. Again, remember uh, back in verse one, uh, he just said, but if anyone does sin. Okay, so, so he's not calling. If, if, here's how you know somebody's a Christian. They keep the commandments perfectly, unfailingly, without ever messing up at all. That's not what he's saying. So the question is, what is he saying? You will know that you're saved if you keep the commandments, but he's not calling for perfection. What is he, what's he calling for? Keeping his commandments means you are earnestly seeking to follow the biblical commandments. You're, you're earnestly seeking to do that. Your heart does not say this. I know the Bible says not to do this, but I'm gonna do it anyway. A heart that says, I know the Bible says not to do this, or the Bible says to do this, but I'm going to do the opposite is likely a heart that has not been redeemed by Jesus. Here's another way to say it. A converted heart says this, I once was running in my own direction. Now I'm stumbling along a new path. Can anybody identify with that? I once was running in my own direction. I I was on my own path, doing my own thing, and I was running, right? I was in it, going that direction. Boom, I'm jogging. There's, There's nothing in my way. I'm on my own path, going in my own direction, doing my own thing, being my own boss, on my own, right? Get it? But now that I've been saved, regenerated by God, now I'm on this different path, Okay, and I'm, and I'm just stumbling along the way because I, I fail and because I sin, but it's a clear different path that I'm on. I was running down this one. Now I'm stumbling along this one. That's what he, that's what he means, okay? So verse three again, and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments, Interesting that he keeps using that word know. Let's read it again. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So how does, here's a question, how does knowing, okay, how does knowing 
connect to obedience? How does knowing in this verse connect to the obedience in, in this verse? Here's how it does. It's a knowing or truly believing that God is a loving and infinitely wise God. Okay, so it's not just a physical knowing. Okay, so people who physically knew Jesus didn't always obey, right? Judas, he knew, physically saw him with his eyes, knew him, but that knowing, that physical knowing of Jesus did not necessarily produce obedience, did it? We know he didn't obey Jesus, okay? Uh, what about intellectual knowing? Does intellectual knowing produce obedience? Not necessarily. I know a lot of people who are not saved and you can ask them, who is Jesus? And they will say he was a first century Galilean peasant. What did he do? Well, he died on the cross. Why did he die on the cross? He died for sin. So they, they would intellectually know Jesus, but not necessarily obey him or follow him. So, so we must ask, what knowing is this that produces obedience? Well, again, I'm saying it's a knowing or truly believing that God is loving and infinitely wise. Because if I know God is loving and he's infinitely wise, then everything that he commands me to do, I know will ultimately be good for me to do. Does that make sense? Okay, here's another way to say it. Why don't you obey someone when they give you a command? Okay, they give you a command and you don't obey that. Well, generally it's because you don't think it's going to bring you joy. So if somebody said, Kirk, um, I want you to go uh, to the carnival. Okay, there's several in town now. Go to the carnival. That's a command. I would say no, right? Because I'm not going to get on one of those death traps. I hate big crowds and terrible food. No, a carnival will not bring me joy. I will not go. Okay, you see how that works? So I disobey the command because it would not bring me joy. But if God is loving, that means he will only command you to do things that are good for you. And if God is infinitely wise, if you know God is infinitely wise, then the command that he gives you is the best thing for you because he's infinitely wise. So he's infinitely wise and loving. Therefore, when he says, okay, um, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, when he gives us commands, we obey them because we know he loves us and ultimately obeying God's commands will bring us joy. So, so the guy, look, the, the guy who cheats on his wife, he disobeys God's commands because he believes that relationship will ultimately bring him joy. But he's wrong because obeying God and being faithful to his wife, that would have ultimately brought him joy. See? So the knowing here is directly connected to the obedience because as children of God, as kids of God, we say when God commands us to do something, we do it because he loves us and it's ultimately gonna bring us joy. So, so we, should, we should obey him, okay? Verses five and six. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected as, as we obey the love that we have for God grows and grows and becomes more and more perfect, our, our love for God as, as we obey him. That's what that means. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected or is being perfected or being made complete. By this, we may know him that we are in him 
whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Again, when the Bible refers to walking, it's referring to a way of living, a pattern of life. So again, in verses three through six, we see this test again and again, that your way of living, your walking should be obeying God's commands and, and, and you should be walking. Here's how you can know. Did, did you see that at the, at the end of five? Okay, by this we may know, okay, know what? Know that you're saved. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, who's the he? Jesus, in the same way Jesus walked. Now, now how did Jesus walked. Does that mean we should wear tunics and speak Aramaic? Okay, no. So, so we have to ask the question, how did Jesus walk? If, if I, I want to know I'm saved and I got to obey the commandments and walk like Jesus walked, how did Jesus walk? Well, it's all in there. You have to love how John writes. John says it, and then he says the same thing again, and he says the same thing again in a different way. He just keeps saying it until we hard-headed people finally get it. How did Jesus walk? In a life of obedience. In a life of obedience. How many times as we read through the gospel of John, as we read through the other gospels, do we see time and time again, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I am here to do the will of the Father, I'm here to obey the Father. The Father has sent me. I'm obeying the Father. He's walking and living and being obedient to the Father. How was Jesus able to be obedient to the Father all the way to the cross? You remember in the garden, he says, not my will, but yours be done. How was he able to be obedient to the Father all the way till the end? Because he knew God's commands for him would ultimately bring about his joy. Jesus knew that anything the father asked him to do was ultimately the best thing for him to do. So that is what enabled Jesus' obedience to the father. In the same way as we walk like Jesus walked, we know that everything that the Bible calls us to do is the best thing for us. And so we just do that. We just do that. Does that make sense? So the person who knows God's commands are good and loving for him and their life they are humbly seeking to, to obey the Bible. That's a regenerated heart. That's a saved person. You can know you're saved. You can leave here today with great assurance that God has called you and that God has saved you. Now, on to test number three, the second test of our sermon, but actually test number three. The love test, verses seven and eight. Behold, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. So which is it, John? Is it old or new? At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness has passed away and the true light is already shining. Okay, so, so I'm not writing to you anything new but it's new. Come on, John, what are you talking about here? One, what commandment is it? And, and is it old or is it new? That, that's what we, again, just, just listen to verses seven and eight again. Behold, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. From the beginning of what? The old commandment is the word that you have heard, okay? Old Testament. 
At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in you because the darkness passed away and the light is shining. So what's the commandment? And is it old or is it new? It came from the beginning, uh, meaning it came from what was written previously, meaning the Old Testament, meaning Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the beginning. Okay, that's the command. The command he's referring to is the command to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the love command. Okay, so it's old. But also in John 15, uh, let me get my site correct, John 15, 12, okay, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. So it's also in the New Testament. So it's an old commandment. It's a new commandment. It's both. So he says, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but it's a new commandment. Okay, so how is it new? Because what Jesus does is he takes the Old Testament commandment to love your neighbor as yourself and he expands it. He expands it. How does Jesus expand that commandment? By expanding who the neighbor is. In the Old Testament to say you need to love your neighbor as yourself meant love people just like you. Okay, so your neighbor, meaning your good Jewish neighbor who thinks the same way that you do, talks like you do, acts like you do, follows all of the Jewish laws, Okay, love that guy just like you love you. Pretty good commandment, not a problem. We can love that person. But when Jesus shows up on the scene, he says, yes, love your neighbor as yourself. And let me tell you who your neighbor is. And he expanded the definition of who they were supposed to love, meaning sinners, meaning people not like you, meaning people that you disagree with, meaning uh, people who have different political positions than you do. Meaning, meaning, It's not just loving people who are just like you, but love people not like you, the people that are hard to love. These these are people who are right here in this room, people who are hard to love. People in the church can sometimes be abrasive, have bad breath, be arrogant, negative, needy, etc. And the call in this text is to love them. Now, Let's see how he continues to flesh that out. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, okay, brother, again, I'll I'll say this again. Um, This isn't the idea of come on people now, smile on your, everybody get together, try to love one another right now. This This is a very specific brother. This is not just brother, man, mankind. He's writing specifically to a church and people in that church. He's saying, love those people, love the people in your church, the people that you go to church with, your brothers and sisters in Christ at that local congregation. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Meaning, if you go to church and you hate everybody there, you don't love the things that God loves and it's a sign that your heart has not been regenerated by God. It's a sign you're not saved, okay? Whoever says he is in the light, meaning whoever says he's saved, and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Cause for stumbling, meaning when the world looks in and sees people in the church hating each other, it's a stumbling block. It's really confusing. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness blinds his eyes. Clearly, the call here, what he's saying, here's how you can know you're saved. Do you love 
your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you have vital relationships with them? Now, the call is to love. Let's define love. Let's talk about exactly, I mean, you know, what does that mean? Well, we know exactly what that means from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great wedding passage, which has nothing to do with weddings. Here we go. I love it when they read this at weddings, but it doesn't have anything to do with weddings. 1 Corinthians 13, which was written to a church, explaining to those church members how they should be interacting with each other, not necessarily husband and wives. That's fine if you want to read this at a wedding, but it's specifically to church members and how church members treat other church members. They should love each other. What does that mean? It means this. Love is patient and kind. The, the call to us, to you, is to be patient and kind with other people, other members in the church. Be patient and kind. Love is patient and kind. Love, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Okay? This is the call for how we treat other people in the church. Now, the thing is, John wants your heart to be where the heart of the Father is. And the Father loves his church. He loves the people in his church. So when your heart reflects the same thing his does, it's a sign that you're saved. Okay. Um, the prodigal son. Uh, we know that story. Okay, we, we know that story. The, the, the kid demands his inheritance. He leaves the father. He, he goes off and lives a crazy lifestyle, party and drinking, all that stuff, um, and, and ends up uh, broke, whatever, has to, has to come back home. The, the father is, is eagerly waiting his son's return. You guys, it's a beautiful scene in the Bible that the father hugs him, puts a new robe on him, new sandals, puts a ring on his finger, the, the whole deal, Right? What we often forget is where was the older brother? As you keep reading in the story, the story goes on to not only talk about the prodigal son who left, but there was an older brother in the story as well. And where was he? Was he with the father? Was he longing? Was his heart waiting for the son to return? Was he wanting to love his brother and embrace him and cherish him and, and celebrate because he was home? No, the older brother was out in the field working. He couldn't have cared less that, that the prodigal son had gone. He didn't care at all. And when he heard that they were throwing a big party because the prodigal had come home, he was irritated about it. Dad, you never throw me any parties. You don't ever, you know, kill the fatted calf for me. This stinks. I don't like this at all. Even though he was there around the father, his heart didn't reflect what it is the father loved. And so believers, Christians, does your heart reflect what the heart of the father is, which is loving the church, which means loving the people in the church? In the New Testament, the New Testament has no concept for Christian life devoid of fellowship in the church. The New Testament has no concept of that. Life in the New Testament is necessarily connected to Christian fellowship. The question being, how are they going to hear the gospel preached if they don't go and have Christian fellowship? How are they going to be made into disciples if they don't connect with the church and Christians? 
Now, today in our fancy world, we have podcasts and online discipleship programs, but let me tell you, those things are no substitute for the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ. Do you love the church? Do you love members in the church? If so, your heart is where the Father's is, which shows you're saved, okay? That's what, that's what John is saying. Those are our two tests that are out before us. John drops some incredible knowledge on us, not wanting us to sin, wanting us to use God's devotion to us as a tool to help move us away from a life of sin. But if we do, if we do sin, we have an advocate there and, and, and he'll say, Father, I, I paid for that sin. I was the propitiation. You don't have to pour out your wrath on them. And, and, and then we saw that we can know that, that we're saved if, if we're earnestly seeking to obey God's commandment. If our heart says, I know the Bible says not to do that and I don't wanna do it. I wanna build up a fence right here so, so I don't go over there. And, I, and I'm willing to construct a big, tall, broad wall, fence, thing, whatever it takes so that I don't go there. That's, that's what a saved heart says. I wanna obey God. I don't wanna do what he says not to do and I wanna do what he has called me to do. The second test we saw was the love test that, that we're called to love the brothers, love Christians. Do you love this church? Does it, if, if all churches everywhere were wiped off the face of the map, would, I mean, would you care? Would, would, would your life be devoid of true love and Christian fellowship if you weren't able to come here and gather and go to a community group and have somebody wrap their arm around you and say, hey, I know exactly what you're going through. Can I pray for you? So we can know that we're saved if we're walking in a pattern of obedience and we can know we're saved if we love Christians in the church. Now, let me say this. If you're here today and that's not you, you're saying, I'm not a Christian, I'm not saved. I want you to think about the text that we read from Psalms. God's wrath is very real. He does pour it out on people who are separated from him. He is a very fierce God. He is not a God to be laughed at or mocked. The text said that his sword was ready for you. Friends, we should be terrified by that. We should be terrified. And I call you today to repent, to confess your sins, to believe on Jesus because he is the propitiation that makes that wrath go away so that we can have life and have it abundantly in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this incredible text. We thank you for this great book. We thank you that in it, we find the words of life. We find words of meaning. We find hope, hope that the wrath that should have come to us is now gone and that you're not angry at your kids. You're not the angry, abusive father who just can't stand to be around his children, but you are a loving father who is not angry at his kids. You get down on the floor with us, you play with us, you laugh with us. You're a loving father and this text shows us that. God, I thank you that you have given us assurance of our salvation, that we can live and know that we are saved, that we are yours, that your grace is sufficient for us. All of our past, present and future sins have been forgiven and you call us into a life of obedience. You call us to obey your commandments. 
because you want our joy. So God, I pray that this church would be marked by those two things, lives of obedience, lives of walking in your commandments, and two, lives of love, love for the brothers, love for the church. And God, may we honor you in all that we say and all that we do. I ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.